0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, and this is your source for the science of endurance performance. Today's guest coach is Alec Donahue. Welcome to the program, Alec. Thank you very much. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a longtime coach uh, specialized in, in cyclocross. You've coached some prominent names, uh, Jeremy Powers, Stephen Hyde, Alan Noble, probably the list goes on. Do I have that right?
1: Correct, Yes.
0: As a coach, I know you've been working as a coach, as a race promoter, as many things, but give us a sense of your coaching philosophy and methodology, if you would.
1: Uh, So I am a, you know, biologist. That's what I went to school for. I went undergrad, but uh, so what I started to find is that the deeper I got into kind of lab research with everything is like there was a big disconnect to actual human performance. So I was always picking out the people who were smart enough to wade through all of the pertinent literature, but knew like what like was minutia that was not applicable to actual high performance.
2: In all of sports, nutrition is one of the most confusing and controversial topics. That's because everyone has an opinion and it's hard to tell fact from fat. Plus what works for one person may not work for you. Now Fast Talk Laboratories is shedding some light on the science of sports nutrition. In our new sports nutrition pathway, we take a deep dive into the science and practice of sports nutrition to help you find what works for you. This pathway features experts like Dr. Asker Yukendrup, Dr. Brian Carson, Dr. Tim Noakes, Dr. John Hawley, Julie Young, and Ryan Kohler. They create a science-based framework that will show you how to think about sports nutrition in a new way. Our sports nutrition pathway is the only guide you need to this complex topic. See more at
0: fasttalklabs.com pathways. All right, this first question comes from Brian Adkins, and he writes, given that there are three primary energy systems, one being the ATP-PC system for very short efforts, two being that anaerobic glycolysis, and three being the aerobic system, and he continues, now we know that all three are typically being utilized just in varying proportions. I'm wondering if we, cyclists, have been underserved with this seven-zone Coggan model, which has seven zones, and I'll read them to you. One, active recovery. Two, endurance. Three, tempo. Four, lactate threshold. Five, VO2 max. Six, anaerobic capacity. Seven, neuromuscular It seems to me that neuromuscular makes sense as a proxy for that ATP-PC system, but it seems that as we progress from zone 1 through zone 6, we're just increasing the proportion of anaerobic glycolysis in more of a fader manner, fader being in quotes, as opposed to a light switch manner, meaning off-on. The polarized training idea resonates well with me, and I enjoy that type of training. So I'm trying to think through the ramifications of various interval durations for power that are above threshold. The distinction between zones 5 and 6 seems a little silly. Aren't both emphasizing anaerobic glycolysis quite a bit, with more emphasis from higher wattage? Are the actual adaptations resulting from a 4 by 8 minute at 108% of FTP really that different from a 3 or 4 or even 1.5 minute at 125% of FTP. I haven't found much science on it. He finally says, it seems reasonable that central adaptations may relate to durations of a certain heart rate. For example, 8 minute intervals averaging 90% heart rate max seem important from Siler. But what about the muscular adaptations and how they vary in these higher zones? So, a lot to unpack there. Uh, and a long question, hopefully listeners out there are familiar with Coggins' seven zones. Um, but if they're not, there, there, are, there are lots of zone systems out there. We've discussed zone systems on the program before. Alec, I'll start with you. How would you initially respond here to Brian? Uh, are we being duped somewhat by zones or do you have a different take on things?
1: We are being duped by zones, but they are very workable. And so I think the whole thing with like coaching and training is we have to have a somewhat common language to try to achieve roughly the same thing. So it's like they work, but why they're working and like how you apply, like even like zone two is like that's a big zone. And like if you're doing 45 minutes or six hours, like you can totally mess up a workout in zone two by like using the wrong end based on the duration you're doing and like you know there every zone has a bucket load of caveats that you need to take into account when you're applying them and you know like your carbohydrate status the temperature there's like so many things like there's a lot of you know uh things that will be conditional with each effort so they're like, there are no partitions. If that, you know, that part of the question is like, clearly there are no partitions and like definitely the fader kind of concept makes more sense. I think most people are on that page where there, we aren't binary on and off. It's the systems are being used at different proportions as you go harder.
0: Ryan, I know you, you had some thoughts here. What do you think? What's your take on this? The, the fader
3: sort of insight that uh, Brian had really resonated because even here in the lab, when I'm testing people, there there are a number of athletes that come in thinking it's it is this on-off switch. So it's a good opportunity to get them to understand that there is this progressive change. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really I really focus because of that. I focus very heavily on the, those three main zones um, that would that would fall with within the Dr. Seiler kind of methodology there. Um, but then also just explaining, you know, how those other zones, where they fall within that structure. And I think that just, it seems like that's very understandable for people once they know it's not this on-off switch. And and then when we talk about uh, more ranges and there, more zones... Then I sort of look at those as helping to inform, you know, more of what's the purpose of the workout, what should the feel be, and and thinking more about that that specificity for for your events or or different races.
2: I actually received this question, and I wrote a really lengthy answer to it, and I'm still not sure I, I unpacked everything in the question. There's there's a lot here and a lot of good stuff. So I'll touch on a couple of the points. One, and we we talked about this in a, a previous episode not all that long ago, about how we're always talking about training energy systems, and you'll hear other coaches use that. You'll hear uh, physiologists use that. It is a bit of a misnomer. He is right. There's really three ways in which our bodies can produce energy. So if we were literally just trying to train energy systems, it's really actually not that complicated. Um, when we talk about training energy systems, we're we're talking about a lot more than that. Um, and I've actually thought at some time, should we be talking about training energy systems or maybe use a term like homeostatic systems? Because really what happens when you are racing, when you're going hard, when you're doing a, a threshold effort, whatever sort of effort you're doing – Really, all your body's trying to do is maintain homeostasis. And and the definition for me of fatigue is the point when your body can no longer maintain homeostasis. And there's a whole lot of ways in which you can lose homeostasis. And those are all the different things that we're trying to train. So we're talking about lactate clearance, uh, pH homeostasis, uh, muscular calcium homeostasis, Uh, cardiovascular drift. I I could give you a list of of 50 different things. And we just use this term energy systems um, as shorthand to describe all these things. But I did feel I needed to address that with this question because we might have given some people the wrong impression that we're literally, when we're talking about training energy systems, just talking about these three things. And that's, that's not the case. Loved what every what both of you just said about this because I fully agree. I actually don't use the term zones. I use ranges because I hate that notion of, well, when you you go from zone four to zone five, even though you've only increased five watts, you're now training in completely different systems. Just not the case. We're not that precise. I agree. There there's some ways in which zones are duping us, but I I do think there is a lot behind it. And, and the most important to me is really seeing how effective training is being done and, and finding those when you're doing this type of work to target these sorts of systems, here's about the, the, the range that you're going to work in, or the, if you want to use the term zone, here's the zone you're going to work in. And I don't try to get too caught up in, in what's the, the names of those different ranges or zones.
1: I'm getting more away from uh threshold determining zones because it's kind of just not the way bodies really work. So like, you know, every zone pivoting off threshold is not really working for me. And it's, it's a way I've felt for a while, but we're, I'm learning more and more why that kind of is backed up by the differences in people's physiology, which like clients don't like, you don't need to get into the weeds that deep with them quite yet. As um, you know, the teachers of this stuff, it's like, I want to like, let people know what, what's critical to make their training better. But like, I think, throwing new stuff at people every like year is just like so confusing that like, I don't want to get in like the kind of scientific battle that like the poor athletes are stuck. Like, wait, you said this two years ago, and now you're saying this. And like, this other person is saying this, like the information more, I think is just so hard for athletes, but yeah, like the main, like I'm using less terminology that focuses on five minutes is based on X percent of threshold.
2: I, I agree 100% with you. And I think some of that's just because we didn't have the tools 20 years ago that we have now. The one thing that we really could measure was threshold, So they they had to come up with approximates based on percent of threshold. But there's no reason to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I'm saying the same thing as you. And I, I agree 100% that I, I do like it when the ranges or zones are, are based on physiological points. It's one of the reasons I really like Dr. Seiler's three-zone model because each zone, there is an actual metabolic event that occurs um, at the breaking point of, of each zone. So, on his zone models, when you transition from zone one to zone two, that's when you start to see lactate kick up on, on a lactate curve. That anaerobic threshold, MLSS, whatever term you want to use for it, differentiates his zones two and zone three. And there is a definite change in our physiology at that point. Mm-hmm. I actually found the question really interesting because in the question he says, this distinction between zone 5 and 6 seems a little silly. Aren't both emphasizing anaerobic glycolysis quite a bit? So zone 5 is VO2 max, zone 6 is anaerobic capacity uh, in the Coggins model. But there is actually a physiological event there. Once you hit your VO2 max... Um, if you go above that, that's the point where heart rate and oxygen consumption can no longer keep up with the work. So there actually is a physiological event that differentiates zone 5 and zone 6.
1: And for uh, zone 5, I use up to 40% over threshold. And so I think there's a very big difference between, I'd say like the 8% to 25% is pretty minimal. But like if you're looking at 8% versus 40% 5% over threshold that is noticeably different. And like the rate of lactate production and kind of, you know, focusing more on buffering, buffering combustion and shuttling capacity is stuff that is like, has very important applications in certain events, but completely unuseful in other events. So I think there is, there is a lot of nuance in that five to six range, but it's, not always applicable for every athlete.
2: Agreed. And the one thing I do agree with whole, fully here is whether you're in zone five or zone six, you're not going to be going for very long and it's going to really hurt. Correct. One last thing I wanted to bring up about this, and this is actually was the focus of my answer is, and this is where I do think you're you're getting duped if you you take this approach, is to think, well, I want to train a particular energy system, so what zone do I need to be in? Pick that zone, and that's all you focus on? That's a mistake. So when you are designing your work, there are a lot of other factors. What's the duration? What's the rest length? What are your repetitions? What cadence are you doing? Are you on the climb or the flats? There's all these other factors that play in that ultimately help you target uh, a particular energy system. And if you aren't considering all those other factors and just focusing on the zone, uh, no, you're, you're going to get off track.
0: Well, let's turn our attention to a perhaps a bit lighter subject. Uh, this one, this question comes from Eric. He's in Somerville, Mass., and he writes, given the beer and bike culture, I would be very interested in knowing if there are any performance or recovery effects of alcohol use. Is this is this a, a question worth answering? Uh, <laughs> Alec, what are your thoughts here? Dosage is key in this. Ah, yes, dosage. Explain dosage when it comes to uh, beer.
1: Well, I feel like if someone's having a beer or a couple of beers, you know, one or two nights a week, that's like, there's no real downside to that. And if, if that is something that brings them together with friends or they really enjoy things, um, we don't need to be into the business of deprivation. And so I think responsible consumption of pretty much anything that you're, you you want to eat or drink is reasonable and is not going to ruin your season. So, you know, it, I don't think beer is like helping anybody recover. Although there are, I've had athletes that like weren't amped to do programs that didn't include a little bit of reasonable consumption. Uh, And so I think, you know, it's just, it's something where it's like, it can add a lot of psychological stress if we're like depriving people of things unnecessarily. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's kind of a doesn't really matter in my mind, but you know, when people that drink a little bit more, when they cut back, I often see five to eight pounds come off that athlete and their recovery does get better. So experientially that's what I have seen but I think you know the occasional beer is like not bad at all and it's good to have friends
0: <laughs> this is very true no I I I like how you took what you know could be dismissed as a pretty silly question and turned it into very thoughtful answers uh, uh, Trevor Ryan do you have uh, other uh, opinions here i
3: want to ask the uh ask the cyclist that doesn't drink beer or coffee like the one the two of <laughs> person. us yeah right Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I agree with Alec there. It's, uh, I think that that social benefit is really the key consideration there. And, um, yeah, you know, I'm mostly mountain bike and I feel like beer is a pretty big, uh, component of the, (laughs) the post mountain bike, uh, rides or races. So, and yeah, I think it all comes back to that. Keep it low to moderate and you're probably fine. It's not something I encourage or, or try to dissuade people from and, you know, unless they're uh, maybe getting a little too wild after the, after the race, but yeah, moderation. That's what I always fall back to with this one.
1: Yeah. I think the other thing to do watch out for is that like within three to, you know, three hours of bedtime, it really tends to interrupt sleep. So I think if you're going, you don't want to have beer right before, I mean, right before bed with, you know, so that's cause that we do see that with HRV and, you know, kind of people's experience with sleeping is like you tend to fall asleep quickly, but the quality of sleep, is noticeably diminished. So giving yourself a little bit of time to kind of like uh, metabolize the alcohol and get back into a normal you know, rhythm, it's, it's good to give yourself that window before bed.
2: I was actually shocked when I got a whoop strap. So I, I rarely drink. I have maybe four beers a year. Uh, but I, when I got a whoop strap and, and had my first beer after getting the whoop strap and saw my sleep the next night, it was extraordinary, the difference. Like there was no deep sleep. It was all light sleep or or, or awake. And I've heard other people say the same sort of thing, that uh, uh, you know, drinking a little bit can just absolutely tank your recovery score. It, not that I'm saying I'm focusing on the recovery score, but it, it was quite shocking to actually see the graph of how different my sleep was even just after one beer.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist at Fast Talk Laboratories.
2: And I'm Trevor Conner, CEO of Fast Talk Labs. Between the two of us, Ryan and I have over 40 years of coaching and clinical experience, from juniors to masters, national level athletes to club riders.
3: Our team at Fast Talk Laboratories is pleased to offer new solutions and services. Now you can get the same guidance and testing available to athletes at national performance centers.
2: No matter where you live or train, our virtual performance center can be your support network to get faster, to get answers, and to get more enjoyment from your sport.
3: Schedule a free consult. We'll discuss your background and recommend a path forward.
2: Book a coaching help session. We'll help you push your thinking and find new opportunities. We can troubleshoot challenges and find solutions. Even if you're working with a coach, we can help support you and your coach by bringing a neutral, science-based perspective to your training.
3: Schedule inside testing you can do from anywhere in the world. We can reveal incredible insights into your personal physiology and strengths as an athlete, plus next steps to improve your
2: performance. Improve your nutrition with a consultation tailored to your needs. Or create a personal race day nutrition plan.
3: We can even help you with workouts and skills. We offer in-person and virtual sessions to guide key workouts or improve technique. Fast Talk Laboratories is here for you wherever you are. See how we can help at fasttalklabs.com/solutions.
0: Well, let's uh, let's turn our attention a bit to cyclocross. What I would say is Alex's specialty. Maybe he would disagree, but I know he's he's has a love for it, and it's and it's that time of year when people are transitioning. To cyclocross, maybe they've been racing on the road or the mountain and they want to transition I- into cyclocross, or maybe they don't race except for cyclocross. So uh, we'll touch upon all of that. But we have a specific question here. It comes from Colin. He's in Colorado. He writes I've been racing marathon, mountain bike, and 100 mile gravel races this year with large volume and significant work around LBP or lactate balance point and SST or sweet, stu- sweet spot training. To create high CTL numbers. For me, that's around 95. What strategies should I employ to transition summer fitness to cyclocross specificity? Should I continue high volume in a polarized fashion while the weather is nice while focusing on VO2 max and anaerobic capacity work during intervals? Is there value in still hitting SST or FTP in my lead up? Alec, I will start with you. This is where I might lose some friends, but I am not a very
1: big believer in SST, uh, especially for cross. It tends to really mute people's glycolytic capacity and it makes them, you get very good at doing steady work, which you will never encounter in cyclocross really. Uh, And so the, you know, dropping your CTL, which is another place where I could digress for a long time, which I'm not a big CTL believer. tends to lead athletes down the wrong path as far as valuing recovery. Um, and so I think with an athlete like this, which I have plenty of, we really have to focus on, you do maintenance zone two, but we really need to get glycolytic capacity much, much higher. And so focusing on those kind of short, hard efforts, things like 40, 20s or you know, VO2, yes, but with this person needing such a big Uh, VLA shift that it's like they really need to stay away from things that suppress VLA uh, and focus on, you know, high carbohydrate diet and really like very high glycolytic flux rate efforts.
0: Can you give an example of that?
1: That's where just like, you know, riding a cross course is really good. And you it's a cross course where you want to have very polarized efforts where you can hit it you know, hit the power very hard for probably five to 20 seconds. And then between those efforts, you have technical sections or places where you can coast. And so the opposite of steady state work is what you want to look at. And so with somebody like this, uh, you know, it's, you know, we would want to test to see how low their VLA is and how hard we have to push this. And if someone is, extremely low, I would do more standalone rested, short hard efforts, but if someone's pretty close, this is where the, you know, you could push those like, you know, the high, you know, high glycolytic rate efforts into a block, you know, a 10 minute block or even like 15 minute block. But then I think once you start to do that kind of like, you know, the longer intermittent block, you're gonna get less of an extreme movement in your VLA uh, and I think you know making sure that they pull back on hard, steady-state efforts is one of the you know major points because you're trying to not reinforce where you're stuck.
2: I, I couldn't agree more with everything you're saying in terms of the efforts. Yeah, I, I think sweet spots not going to help you at all for for cross. Uh if you're any of our listeners, if you're a road cyclist getting into cross and trying to figure out how to do the training, I would say the closest thing in road cycling to the fitness you need for cyclocross would be a crit. So it's that going through corners, going through technical parts and then coming out hard. It's a lot of hard efforts follow you know, and points where you're not pedaling at all. There are some racers who just try to get out solo and then it's more like a time trial, but again, you're not sweet spot. You're gonna you're this is a sub hour race for most people. You're gonna be at threshold or, or higher. So you, you want that high intensity. And I love that you said don't focus on the CTL. Because the other thing to remember is in cross, because of the types of efforts and because you're getting off of your bike and doing a lot of running, if you are training right, and especially if you did a road season, you're now going into cross, your CTL is going to tank. Because remember, CTL is based on training stress score from each ride and you're not going to get an accurate training stress score for your cross races because of you know, you're, you're killing yourself when you're running, but you're not accumulating any TSS according to your bike computer. So, yeah, where the question comes in where he's talking
3: about doing sweet spot training to create high CTL numbers, it just seems that initially has me concerned with an athlete that ha- already has that high focus. So in terms of anything to add, I think strategies to employ – uh, to transition to cyclocross is mentally get yourself ready to see a drop in CTL. If if that's something you can't handle, then that's gonna that's gonna affect your season. I think yeah, like Trevor and Alex said, the the training and and the everything that you should be doing on the bike is is spot on. And I think the only other thing I can add is that mental piece to say, hey, can I handle seeing my CTL drop? <laughs>
2: Just to give you an example, so I have a cross-athlete I'm coaching who does a road season as well, but he's more a cross-rider. In the spring, during the road season, we'll get his CTL up in the the 115, 120 range. Uh, During the cross season, we have him down around probably 70.
0: Alec, I know you you sort of said you could talk for hours about CTL here, and, and we have been doing this recently quite a bit, sort of picking on CTL. From your very extensive background working with, with cross athletes, is CTL even a thing for you? It is not. Tell us a little bit more.
1: Cause there are too many external variables from, you know, like, was this ride on the second day, were you depleted in carbohydrates? Was the temperature hot? Did you race, you know, three days before? None of those factors are reflected in CTL. So when, I have athletes trying to chase a certain number. They stop listening to their body. And so with, I, I love a lot of these smart devices coming out, but I need people to still think. And, you know, some of the best racers that I've still ever worked with were, you know, you know an older generation where people actually knew how to go hard on the courses at the right points. They were, they used their brains more and weren't. Data-driven is good, but you can't replace Thinking with just looking at the numbers. Uh, And so CTL is kind of the thing that really exemplifies that for me is like, you know, we can look to see how much have you been riding and looking at like time and zone is more interesting to me. Uh, But focusing on keeping that number up is the number one way I see people are like, I'm just going to go a little bit harder today, a little bit longer. I'm not going to take that day off because it's going to hurt my CTL and like where like Once you get people to take those extra days off here and there, they bounce back from their low points so much faster. Like once they lose that trap of like chasing the number, they value recovery and listen to how their body is primed or not primed for training, which is more important than any kind of CTL number you'll ever give
0: yourself. I bet that that's music to your ears, Trevor. Yeah. Well,
2: I don't know if you agree with this, but the other thing I'll point out is, remember the cross season is, for most of us, a short season, maybe a couple Mm -hmm. months. And you're often racing every weekend, sometimes twice every weekend. So certainly when I take athletes into that part of the season, all we're trying to do is get them ready every weekend to race and also keep them on top of things. If you get fatigued and get behind it's very hard to recover, come back, and, and have a good season. Like road season, it's so long. Let's say in in middle of May, an athlete's starting to get fatigue. I can go, okay, let's let's take a couple weeks off, and then we'll rebuild and, and get you back to racing, and it's fine. You do that in the middle of a cross, and you've just missed half the season. So I don't care about CTL during the cross season. It is all about just um hopefully we come in with good enough fitness that we can just through racing get you a little stronger and then it's just every week it's let's make sure you're ready for the weekend and let's make sure you never get behind on your your recovery but alec how do you feel
1: yeah so i think that you know like the concept of ctl has merit as far as like i need to know if people's aerobic conditioning is still at a high level which we lose that very quickly during cross because if you're if you're racing twice on the weekend and then kind of cooked on Monday and Tuesday, you aren't doing very much training. And that's where I will lean more towards. We don't want to race more than three weekends in a month. And many athletes don't have the fitness kind of bank account to race twice a weekend, three weekends in a row. They need to work on that zone too. So like we do need to have a certain ratio of zone two to races I think even in like a three-month season. So there is like, you do need to do accounting for that kind of chronic training load, but it doesn't often show up in that number.
0: Excellent. Well, let's, let's continue with the cyclocross theme, but get into a bit more of the technical side of things. Uh, we have a question here that came in from Megan. She's over in Westport, Ireland, and she writes, I've heard Katie Compton discuss how she trains a certain cross-skill by repeating that same skill over and over again at a faster and faster pace until she is ultimately going faster than even she would in a race or faster than race pace. Is this a sound approach for amateurs as well? What other pro tips do you have for mastering cross skills, particularly ones that involve quickness at race speeds? Alec, uh, again, I'll turn to you first since you have so much experience with uh, the, the cross side of things
1: so on this one i would say this is the only way to do it it's you know kind of free riding and seeing new terrain all the time you don't workshop anything you know so katie's obviously the gold standard in cyclocross and a brilliant handler uh, you know like watching her race at you know um you know it was a uh, hartford nationals and it was like icy frozen ruts and like it looked like she was riding on a bike path while like, everybody else's bikes were exploding here and there like it's just she's such a brilliant technical rider and i think this kind of training where if you have a small loop you want to hit the same corner 50 times and like try weighting the front end more try weighting the rear end more try with less pressure try with a shorter stem like so until you workshop all the variables in you know just a few conditions you're not really training your technical skills. You're just kind of like free riding and having fun. So I think this method of having a training area where you're hitting the same features over and over again and pushing the speed up as you learn how to get more performance out of your equipment and your technique, that is the way to do it. Obviously, Katie's right.
0: (laughs) That's... That's very interesting to hear and not not surprising whatsoever. Uh, Ryan, Trevor, you guys have anything to add there?
3: Yeah, I think this, I mean, one, the repetition, just the volume is is, is that crucial, a crucial piece. But then I do like the progression from slower speeds to faster and, and just pulling from, you know, teaching skills on mostly a mountain bike and some on the road. One of the things that I see is that if there are movement deficits, we can usually identify them pretty easily at slow speeds. Because as we go faster and faster, then we mask those. So I do a lot with uh, juniors on the mountain bike, and and you know their tendency is to really just go fast and and have fun riding their bikes. But so I found myself always trying to slow them down, and it's it's almost a bit like you know the, the zone two or LSD type of riding that we do uh, for training, where we just need to say, hey, do a lot of volume at this slower speed and get get comfortable with this because we can. We can identify movement efficiencies and really work on them at slow speeds and then transition you up to those faster speeds.
2: So the thing I'll add, uh, fully agree with, with everything Alec was saying and Ryan saying, you know, skills are, are critical and cross. You, you can have a giant engine. I, I've proved this. Uh, you can have a giant engine and if you don't have the skills, you're, you're going nowhere. And to give you my embarrassing example, when I was coaching the CSU cycling team on a bet, I agreed to... Uh, enter a UCI cross race and had never raced cross before and they had dropped me before I'd crossed the, the start line. And then it was a very embarrassing 20 minutes before I put my tail between my legs and pulled out of the race. So skills are, are absolutely critical.
0: And I think you see that too as a good option with a, a lot of areas will have a, a group Sort of uh, practice race or you know, Wednesday worlds or Tuesday worlds or whatever day of the week they decide to do it on, and a group will get together and they'll do sort of mock races. Um, and there will often be some skills involved because they'll set up a, a course at one park or another. Uh, the problem I think that people can run into there is those mock races are just that. And people will tend to try to race and focus less on the skills because they're not repeating the same sections that often or they're not, as Alec says, workshopping that and and sort of picking it apart um, and and really dialing it in a a single element or section. They're more focused on racing. And and so that would just be my caution is if you go out there and you are not the most skilled rider – there's probably less benefit for you on at least some weeks taking a step back and saying, I'm not going to try to race and win or beat more people than I did last week. I'm actually going to focus on the technical side of things. You're going to get the intensity, you're going to get the technical aspects, um, but you're not going to just get it, go as fast as you can and kind of be sloppy and mask some of those uh, errors because all you're focused on is, is speed. So that I see often at these, these training races.
1: Completely agree on that one. Cause you know, I I don't think people really learn during races. And I think that's kind of why we have a very hard time going to Europe and trying to learn those skills during the race. And it doesn't happen. And so I think on every level, that's what we see is you can't process and assimilate new skills when you're at full capacity and a, you know, a, you know, a training session where you're like with some people that can model the correct riding. And then you try to, you know, follow them, uh, that with your heart rate down a bit lower is I think a very good place to start or a critical place to start. Is like, you have to have like, you know, a little section you can just ride over and over again, where you take a breather once you get tired. And I think the other part is I, I focus on a lot is like your mental state is people have, if you're training, you know, doing very good technical training, you probably have about 45 minutes of quality. If you're, you're essentially in zone five with your brain for these sessions. Uh, and because like, if you're not really like checking in with every neuron in your body, like you're not seeing like, what am I feeling through my hands? What am I feeling through my feet? What am I feeling through my saddle area? Like if you're not processing all of that, it is not deep practice. And so like in a coils, like whole like deep practice thing is many people do junk practice and kind of just go through the motions and you're not growing or learning. And so getting into deep practice for this stuff is critical and very uncommon unless you're a good technical writer. And so I think the people that I see get stuck, they like, they kind of go through the motions, but never get their brain fully engaged with what they're doing and what they're going to improve or change or try out for the next lap to see if it's going to be better. And so I think that kind of like the mental quality of technical practice is the biggest driver for improvement that I see.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that when, when Katie refers to these types of sessions um, and she repeats them over and over again at a faster and faster pace, she's, very much not talking about five repetitions. She's talking probably closer to hundreds. It's it's not a one through five, and one is slow, and two is a little faster, and five is is faster than race pace. It doesn't slide up the scale that fast. We're talking repeatability, repeatability, repetition after repetition, and maybe over many sessions if you're not at katie's level already we're talking many sessions before you're doing some of these things at race pace or beyond race pace so you can't rush it um and like you said alec getting into that deep practice rather than the superfluous sort of scratching the surface practice that a lot of people do um is is critical if you want to really hone these skills for every situation in a, in a race setting. It's, it's, uh, let's be honest, it's also hard to duplicate the intensity of a race in, in a practice session out there, w- w- whether it's skills or or um, an interval session. All right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to another question. This one takes us out, out of cyclocross a bit into mapping out a week. It comes from Robert, and he writes... I typically have 10 hours per week to train. I try to spend one to two of those hours doing some strength routine work for maintenance. I tend towards a polarized model. I've been riding regularly for eight years, so there's not a lot of, quote, unknowns in my overall capabilities. Like a lot of people, I am time crunched, especially when it comes to getting in a ride workout of longer than a one and a half hours. That said, I can probably get two to three hours of training in a day, a couple of times a week, if I work out before and after work. So those would be two-a-day sessions. So within a week, I try to get in the following. Two hours maintenance or weights, six hours in Siler Zone 1, two hours in Siler Zone 3, one day off, one day totaling three hours in a two-a-day type scenario, two days in he gets two hours total, again, in a -a two-a-day type scenario, and three days, he'll do one hour. What's the best way to plan this for maximal adaptive response? And how do two-a-days affect adaptive response with different kinds of stimuli? Again, a a somewhat complicated scenario, maybe, or, or typical scenario. I think this is probably a fairly common scenario. Is Robert here, is he doing things well? Is he, um, does he have a, a good uh, a plan here? Um, and back to his final two questions, what's the best way to plan for maximal adaptive response?
1: Uh, my first question for him is how much is he sleeping? And so like, if you like, if you're splitting up your workouts into two a days, if you're sleeping enough and supporting it with like adequate nutrition, they can have benefits. But Usually if you're having to split this day up, you know, at this short duration, it means you're very uh, committed for the rest of your life. And so most likely napping would be better for that second part in an athlete like this. And so age, sleep and nutrition are kind of, these are aspects that I would need to thoughtfully answer this question. But I think in general, it looks solid and it look, yeah, it does
0: look solid. Trevor, what what do you have to say here? I
2: guess since we're talking about the the, the two a days right now, uh, we did recently do an episode on that, and and then I did say I, I ate a little crow on that episode because I used to be very anti two a days, and I'm coming more on board. But I do look at this. Uh, he he has two days where he does two hours, so uh, and that's divided between twice a day, so it's one hour ride and I'm assuming in the morning and one in the afternoon. That's the one part that I look at and go, I'm not sure that's benefiting you that much because, A, a lot of that's going to be junk time. You also need to factor in, you got to get changed, You got to get on your bike. You got to get ready. I don't know if he's showering after each one, but it's actually taking up a lot more time than if he could just get the, the two hours in at some point. Uh, so if he could turn those into just a two-hour ride uh, once a day. I think that's going to be actually more time efficient uh, and a more productive ride. And that's where so I I think back when I was training in Toronto, what I would do in that case, and this is actually what I do, I often try to get a two-hour ride in during the week, um, get up earlier, get on the bike by, say, 6 o'clock, get my two-hour ride in, Uh, just have to shower once. And then in that afternoon where he would have been doing a second ride, uh, I agree with Alex, take a nap, get some recovery.
3: Like Alex said, we, we would have a lot more questions that come up here and trying to find what works for this athlete is, is, um, would take, you know, some back and forth. But, you know, the thing that stuck out to me was that this is, this is broken up into the week and I think it's easy to just go within that week time frame for these training blocks. So one thing that comes to mind to add for me is can we, this is another question for the athlete, can we break this up into um, getting rid of the, the week microcycle essentially and just think about days and, and uh, can we block up days differently for this athlete to get maybe a better overload, a bigger overload, and, and try to help that adaptation. And then to Alex's point about sleep, if we're, I think we get a little bit stuck sometimes when we're we're time crunched, and me being a time crunched athlete myself, I, I totally see where this is coming from, and it's easy to go into that that calendar week scenario. But if we can sometimes think about what do we need to get an overload, and can we do that over? A certain amount of days, and then, oh, if a recovery day ends up popping in on a weekend, well, that's fine. Maybe we can focus more on sleep and recovery and and then not have to stress as much about sticking to this seven day model in effect
0: so what you're suggesting is um your life and work life in particular might revolve around a seven day calendar, but your training life could revolve it could be a eight nine ten day. Uh, uh, cycle, which could aid in creating the overload that you need to look for or uh, create these adaptations.
3: Yeah, and I think I've got I've been able to work with a, a number of firefighters over the years, and I think their schedule is a great example where they they have some kind of schedule of maybe three days on, three days off, four days on, four days off. And for us, that was really the eye opening moment for me with coaching is working with them to say, well, we can't stick to this because if you have your Regular Saturday group ride, well, there's going to be plenty of weeks where you miss it, but we need to adjust around that. And now their seven-day week is now broken up into maybe, yeah, seven, eight, nine,
2: or ten-day, quote-unquote, week. I find that really interesting. This shows you, Ryan, and I often think a lot alike because I'm looking at my response, the email that I wrote back, and I cautioned against trying to map out the perfect week. Uh, and said stop thinking in terms of weeks and recommended that he he think in terms of two three-day blocks so do two or three days where you build up a little bit of fatigue and then have a a day or two of recovery and then do your next two three-day block and who cares if it starts on a tuesday a wednesday or a saturday
0: well yeah it's uh often hard to answer questions like this when we don't know everything about the athlete but i think those were some great suggestions Um, uh, Alec, it's been a pleasure to have you on Fast Talk this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It
2: was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Alec Donahue, Trevor Connor, and Ryan Kohler, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.